Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day and our time together to come learn more about who you are. And we thank you, Lord, as we study about your restoration of Israel. We're, we're thankful that you're a God who keeps his promises, that even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. And so we thank you, Lord, as we look at these things. I pray, Lord, that for the church at large, the church here and the wider church, that we would realize that this restoration of Israel, it's our promise too and that we would know that you have a kingdom for us and that you, the king, are coming soon. And so we pray that you would instill that in us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you. I missed all of you. I um, had a wonderful time on vacation. I was telling a few people here, it was the only time that I've had as of late where my little boy asked me to go to bed because he had so much fun. So you know when a six-year-old says, Dad, can I go to bed? He must be having fun outside. So... Anyway, it's great to be back with all of you. Today we're in part two in Revelation chapter 11. And what we're going to do is just do a little bit of review because I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Revelation 11. But remember, the big picture in Revelation 11 is we have an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And so what we're really having is background information in which John is supplying us things that are going to be occurring within the last three and a half years. And what we're going to find out is in Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14 that we're covering, we're going to see, the, I think, the restoration of Israel, that God is going to bring providentially and through his power Israel to saving faith and repentance. And I'll be making that case. And so if you're ever wondering, remember where Paul writes in Romans 11:26, all Israel will be saved? And we can prove exegetically that that is, in fact, the nation of Israel, ethnically. If you ever wonder, where in the world do we see that in the book of Revelation? It's Revelation 11. I think that that's what's being taught here. So this is very important for our biblical worldview and for our theology. So with that, let me begin by doing a little review where we had left off here with the two witnesses who had come to restore all things. Let me just read it again. Revelation 11, verses 3 through 4. Here it says, And I will grant authority, God says, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, let me give you a summary of what we learned last time. Number one, there's three big items. Number one, these two witnesses in church history were thought to be Enoch and Elijah. But recall last time, we had explained that the ministry of these two witnesses is far more in keeping with the ministry of Moses and Elijah because both of these two witnesses will do the same miracles that Moses did and that Elijah did. Now, why would that be important? Because Moses and Elijah form the summary of the prophets. And so the prophets, again, are preaching in Israel, and it is going to lead them to national repentance. They will come to faith in Messiah, and God is going to be faithful to all of his promises. The second thing that they're going to be doing, notice in the text, this is the second thing I want to review, notice they're going to be prophesying. And we talked about the nature of prophecy. Anytime you see the idea of prophesying, remember there's two fundamental elements to prophecy. There's both forthtelling and foretelling. The majority of prophecy that we read in our Bible is foretelling, where the biblical prophet will say, repent and come back to the Lord. Flee from idolatry, flee from darkness, and return to the light. It's that sort of message. That's foretelling. But there's also a foretelling aspect, and that is predictive prophecy. So prophecy entails both, both foretelling and foretelling. Well, what's very interesting and unique about the book of Revelation we learned was that prophecy in Revelation, according to Revelation 19.10, has as both its subject and its source the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the source of all revelation that these two prophets will be speaking is Jesus. Okay, Jesus, God himself, is the one who sent John to preach and to teach this message in Revelation And the two prophets are doing the same. He is also, Jesus Christ, the subject of the prophecy. And so we had laid forth then that what these two prophets are really teaching and preaching is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the message that came from him and the message that's about him. Yeah, Bob. Is it just circumstantial or significant that Moses and Elijah were on the mount? I was going to mention that, yes. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, 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 very good. I'm glad you did. Thank you. Keep going. Exactly. That's another reason, Bob, and I'm glad that you pointed that out, that we can say, you know what, Enoch and Elijah, yeah, there's some evidence for that, but Moses and Elijah is better. So when you look at the evidence of what Bob said, the transfiguration, who was up on the mount with the Lord Jesus? It was Moses and Elijah. It wasn't Enoch and Elijah. Plus, when we're going to look at the miracles that these two witnesses, these prophets perform, it's identical, again, with the ministries of Moses and Elijah. In fact, in some sense, you're going to see that the miracles supersede that of Moses and Elijah because these prophets have the ability to perform these miracles anytime they want. We're going to see that in this text. And again, it's all God's power, but they're given that authority, okay? So absolutely, that's further evidence why we know that Moses and Elijah are more in keeping than Enoch and Elijah with these two witnesses. Now, the third thing that we learned, notice it says in the green that there are also two olive trees. And what that told us is that this passage is being linked deliberately to Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, God had promised through Zerubbabel, say that name five times fast, (laughs) right? It gets to be a tongue twister. Zerubbabel was a governor and he was tasked with rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. Well, he and Joshua, which was the high priest, they were the two olive trees. And these two olive trees in Zechariah 4 were a sign and a symbol to the world that God was not done in his favor, in fact, had returned to Israel. But he wasn't done with his people, that they, in fact, would be restored. And so we saw evidence of this. Here's Zechariah 4, 2 through 3. It says, he said to me, this would be the angel to Zechariah, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with its bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. So stop there for just a moment. When you read Zechariah 4, the lampstand becomes very apparent. It is in fact God's spirit. In fact, there are seven lampstands in a reference to the sevenfold or the fullness of the spirit. Well, these two olive trees draw from the oil that comes from these lampstands, okay? So the idea then is just as we see in Zechariah 4, 6, if I continue the verse, God says it's not by your power or your might, but by my spirit. So how is Zerubbabel in Joshua going to bring forth the temple and restore Jerusalem? It's not by their power. It's by the power of God. Okay, so if you keep reading in verse 3, it says also, two olive trees, that's Joshua and Zerubbabel, there by it, one on the right side of the bull and the other on its left side. So again, they're being empowered by God's Spirit. Now, there's one other connection I want you to see. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. I don't know if we covered this verse last time, but I want to do so this time. Zechariah 4, verses 12 through 14. There's so much in Zechariah 4. I wish we could read the whole, really the whole section in Zechariah, the first four chapters. But notice in Zechariah 4, 12 through 14, Zechariah here again is speaking with his angel. He says, And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil? That's again a symbol of the Spirit from themselves. So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Verse 14, Zechariah 4. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, if you're standing by the Lord of the whole earth, it means you have his favor. And it means you're being empowered by him. And so these two are going to bring about what God had said, that is the restoration of Jerusalem. Well, now, notice you have the identical phrase. Notice at the end of verse 14, Zechariah 4, there are the two anointed ones who are standing by the, Lord of the, by the Lord of the whole earth. Notice you have the same phrase. So how much more clearly can John make it that he's alluding to Zechariah 4? He can't make it any more clear. He, he's, he's talking about the two olive trees. He's talking about the fact that they stand before the Lord of the earth. So if we get this down, If we understand that John is bringing us back to Zechariah 4, 
What's the common situation? Zechariah 4, the people of God had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. In John's day, the people of Israel had been trampled by the Gentiles for the church age. In Zechariah's day, God was going to be faithful to make them a nation again. In John's day, he's going to make them a nation for how long? Forevermore. He's going to restore the kingdom that the Messiah David will reign over forevermore, as we see alluded to in Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. I, in fact, I believe it's Ezekiel 37, 25, don't quote me on that, where he says, and my servant David will reign over them forevermore. That's what he's going to do. So that's what this passage is all about. God's favor is returning to Israel. And again, through the allusions to the Old Testament, I think John makes that very clear. Now, one of the questions that arises, and by the way, if anyone has any questions or comments, feel free to raise your hand. One of the questions that often comes up when we're talking about the two witnesses is when in the world do they prophesy during the 70th week of Daniel? We know it's for 1260 days, but which side? In other words, that's three and a half years. Now, remember, just for everyone's sake, I'm going to put up my laser pointer. Anytime I have this diagram up, what does it represent? The last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. So that would be the beginning of it right here. Here's the midpoint, the three and a half years, and here would be the seven-year mark. So our choices regarding when the prophets prophesy for 1260 days, it could be the first three and a half years. It could be the last three and a half years. Or as Bob one time pointed out, he says it could be not either. It could be a blending of both. It could, it could start here and go to here, so to speak. You know what I mean? So we're not locked in. But here's why I think it's best to see they're prophesying in the last three and a half years for these reasons I'll put up. I've got to get rid of my pointer, though, without shutting my computer down. Let's see if I can do that. Oh, look at there. All right. I think it's the last three and a half years for the following reasons. First of all, the 1260 days are simultaneous with the trampling of the holy city. We know from the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, and in Daniel 9, that the trampling of the holy city would be synonymous with the great tribulation. In fact, that's what Jesus is referring to in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Okay, so the trampling of the holy city is confined primarily to the last three and a half years. Why? Because it's in the midpoint that the Antichrist is the one who breaks that seven-year agreement. Okay, and so the last three and a half years, he incites the trampling of the holy city. The second reason is that the prophecy is simultaneous with the reign of the beast during the great tribulation, according to Revelation 11.7 and Revelation 13.5. Okay, and so for those reasons, we have to see that these prophets are speaking, I think, during the last three and a half years, what would be called the great tribulation. Okay, now all tribulation is great to those who receive it, but the great tribulation in eschatology is always seen as the last three and a half years. Now, one question that brings up if, in fact, these two prophets are prophesying during the last three and a half years, why in the world are we covering it here in Revelation 11? It seems as if all of a sudden we've got to the end of the 70th week. Are you with me? So, again, what we have to realize is as we look at the structure of Revelation, we're looking at an interlude between the sixth trumpet, we finish that, and the seventh trumpet. Okay? So it's the way that John can say, oh, by the way... You have this other stuff that's happening during the last three and a half years. You're also going to have these two prophets like Moses and Elijah, and they're going to be prophesying as well. So it's a way that he can give you an interlude. It's kind of like in TV shows. Remember the old cowboy westerns? Meanwhile, back at the ranch. And so the idea is, meanwhile, back at the ranch says, this is happening simultaneously, right? Well, that's what we have. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the two prophets are prophesying for this entire period. Now, Turn your Bibles. You don't have to read all of this. I just want you to see that when we get to Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19, that's going to be the seventh trumpet. When the seventh trumpet is opened, that leads to the seven bowls. You get to Revelation 12. All the way through Revelation 14, verse 20, there you have an interlude which shows what's, what's happening uh, as far as the background information with Israel 
It gives you history. It explains why all of these things are occurring. So again, it's another interlude where John pauses and he says, oh, by the way, this also happened. Okay, so John does that repeatedly. He gives you an interlude. And so that's why we're covering the last three and a half years. It's merely an interlude. It doesn't mean that all of the judgments at this point have culminated. We won't see that until we get to Revelation 19. Okay, is that clear? Anybody have any comments or questions, show ideas? Okay. All right, now let's keep moving forward then. Again, we see that these two witnesses are like Moses and Elijah. Revelation 11, verses 5 through 6, it says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, notice here the reference to fire coming out of the mouths of these two prophets. This, again, is very reminiscent of the ministry of Elijah. How many remember reading of Elijah calling down fire? I'm sure many of you have in the Old Testament. Well, in 2 Kings 1, verse 10, we see Elijah do that. Now, let me just reset the story. If you remember, in Elijah's day, he had to deal with a wicked king named Ahab. Well, Ahab ended up dying, but his son was no peach either, Ahaziah. Ahaziah was one who did evil. And it says in 2 Kings 1 that he had fallen through the lattice, some structure in his building that he was staying in in Samaria, and he was severely injured. Well, instead of inquiring of Yahweh who could heal, he has his false prophets inquire of Baal. So you see the chip doesn't fall far from the block or there's a chip off the old block or whatever the saying is. He's just like his dad. He's just like Ahab. He's committing the same kind of sin. And so Elijah comes out to rebuke him and Ahaziah will not tolerate it. So what he sends out are 50 men with a captain, captain plus 50 men that are going to arrest Elijah. Well, how does Elijah handle that? It's the way in which I think a lot of us would like to handle a few things. He calls down fire. Okay, turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 1.10. I hate to say this, and this is part of my repentance here, but uh, I've often wondered if God would ever give me this power during traffic jams. <laughs> Not literally, but oh, calling down fire. Isn't this amazing? All right, 2 Kings 1.10. It says, Elijah, now remember the, the captain plus the 50 that Ahaziah had sent out are going to try to arrest him. And it says, Elijah replied to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, then is implied, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Guess what happened? It says, then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. He was a man of God. Okay, so what we have to understand then is here in the same text, Fire is proceeding from the mouth of these two prophets, which shows us they certainly have a ministry much like Elijah did. In fact, when it says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth, I think we may be able to take that either literally fire is coming out of their mouth or as a figure of speech saying that they're calling down fire, okay? Um, it would be like, if, if someone were to say, venom comes out of his lips, do, you, do we think that literal venom is coming out of their lips? No, but it means something. They're saying poisonous things. Well, here it may be a saying in which they have the power to literally call down fire, just like Elijah did. That may be the best way of understanding this text. So it's either literal that fire is proceeding right out of their mouth or they're calling down fire like Elijah did. But that's how they kill their enemies. Now, very interesting as well, notice the underlying portion. For those who try to harm these prophets... Anyone who does that, it says he must be killed in this way. Must is D-E-I. Uh, Bob and I have talked many times about this, but we'll keep doing it every time we see it, day. And day has to do with what? The, yes, exactly, the divine necessity. It is the divine necessity that the enemies of these two prophets must be killed in this way. Now, why is that important? Because you're going to see later as we proceed through this text that the Antichrist is given authority to kill the two prophets. 
So no other person can harm the two prophets. In fact, it's the divine necessity that all who try are put to death. But we have to infer then that it's also the divine necessity for God's providential will and his decretive will that in fact the Antichrist is able to overcome the two prophets. So it shows you that God has complete sovereign control over all that is happening here. Okay, we have to remember that no matter what happens in the events that we see in the Bible, the Revelation, or in our lives, God is in control. Okay, now it's easy to see God in control when the enemies of God are wiped out by fire. But it's going to be hard to see God in control when the Antichrist gets his way. Are you with me? But we have to believe both. It's easy to say that God's in control when everything's going well in our life. But it's hard to see God in control when things aren't going so well. Okay, and I think that that's a lesson that we can pull from this text, that it's both and. He's in control of both. Okay, now the other thing I want to point out is, notice here it says, these have the power, and it's both, these have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall. Again, who had that power? Elijah did. In 1 Kings 17, he did not allow rain except by his word to fall upon the land. In fact, that's a big deal even to the writer of James. Turn your Bibles to James 5.17. James makes a point of this, that Elijah was known as a man of God, but he was like us. He was a sinner, but because he trusted, he could even shut up the skies. And that's one of the points that James makes. James 5.17. James 5.17. Elijah, he says, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Okay? Now, notice how long did it not rain for? Isn't that interesting? Three and a half years. Now, how long are these two ministering for? Three and a half years. Isn't that interesting? Now, again, we can just say, well, that's just a coincidence, but there's too many of those in the Bible, aren't there? (laughs) Right? So I think that that shows us that, yes, Elijah does come back, and he does restore all things. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 17, they asked him, is Elijah going to return to restore all things? And he says, on the one hand and on the other, On the one hand, Elijah is coming to restore all things. But on the other hand, he's already come in the form of John the Baptist, and they did whatever they wished to him. So what Jesus was affirming is, yes, John the Baptist is a foreshadowing of Elijah, but there remains a coming of Elijah to restore all things. And if you recall last time, we talked about the restoration of all things comes from Malachi 4, 5 through 6, where one day God promised through the ministry of Elijah... He would return the hearts, literally restore the hearts of the children to the fathers. And we thought, well, that's a curious statement. Does that mean there's no longer going to be any fighting between, you know, children and their their families, their parents, etc., their father? No, more than likely in Malachi 4, what it means is that the Jews are going to be restored to the faith of their forefathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if we're right about Revelation 11 being about the restoration of Israel, what happens by the time we get to verse 14? You have the repentance of Israel, they come to faith in Jesus, and they have the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elijah does restore all things. And then, again, we're seeing a foreshadowing, a snapshot, all the way to the end of the 70th week. Now, When we get to Revelation, the wider view of it, this doesn't actually occur in time until Revelation 19. But sure enough, Jesus does return and he sets up his kingdom and all of Israel will be saved. Okay, so that's part of Elijah's ministry here. Now, notice also in red on the the screen here, it says they also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every plague. Now, who had that power? Moses in Exodus chapter 7. So again, Moses and Elijah are the two prophets that these two are in keeping with, okay? Now, I already talked about the restoring all things. I have that in my notes, but I think we covered that last time. Is anybody confused about that, restoration of all things? Let me just read the text real quick. I'll just read the citations here. Malachi 4, 5 through 6, Matthew 17, 10 through 13, and Acts 3, 19 through 21. We'll get those on tape. If anyone wants those again, 
see me afterwards. But those ha are texts that have to do with the restoration of all things. And I think, again, that's what these two witnesses are doing. Now, here comes the bad news. We just saw good news in the sense that God's people, the two prophets, are able to overcome their enemies. But here the beast is going to murder the two witnesses. Revelation 11, 7 through 9. It says, when they have finished their testimony, and I think that would be at the end of the three and a half years, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Now, notice here who's going to end up harming these two prophets. It's the beast. Now, the reference here to the beast is the first of 36 references in Revelation to the Antichrist. Okay, now what's very interesting is there are several terms that could be used for beast. The one that's being used here is therion. There's another one that could be used, katanos. Now, what's the difference? Katanos would be a domesticated beast like cattle, things you'd have on the farm. But therion is a wild, voracious beast that's cruel and cunning and it's, it's a cruel, vicious animal by nature. That's what's being used to speak of the Antichrist. And I think it's being chosen deliberately that he is also by nature cruel, cunning, and vicious. Now, what's very interesting in the Septuagint, in the book of Daniel chapter 7, Therion, the very same term for beast that's used for the Antichrist here, is used of the successive kingdoms that would come about. Do you remember in Daniel 7, it talked about there was four different beasts, and the first represented the Babylonian Empire, the second represented the Medo-Persian, then it was the Greek, then it was the Roman Empire, and from that last one, there would be an offshoot of ten kings from whom the Antichrist, or from which the Antichrist would come. Okay? Now, here's the point. All of those beasts, as they come up, the term therion is used, the very same term that's used here of the beast. And so here's what I want you to think about. All of these kingdoms that were built, whether it's the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greek, the Romans, in one sense, they are beast-like. They are imperfect men ruling in ways that are displeasing to God. And so throughout human history, we've had beasts, but they're going to culminate all of them one day in a form of human government that is so depraved, it's the beast. Is everyone with me? So I think John is building deliberately off of Daniel 7, showing us that, yes, he's the beast for a reason. He is the culmination of all that is wrong with humanity. At the end of the day, democracy will never succeed with fallen humanity. Why? Because we elect imperfect people. We ourselves who vote are imperfect. What was the famous line of Winston Churchill? He says the uh, capitalist uh, Democrat system is the worst system of all, except for all other systems, right? <laughs> and, and the point being is at least, at least in the Democrat system, we're able to eliminate as much as possible the wickedness of man. Why? Because we have plurality of people who are governing. And so if one person gets out of control, you can get rid of them. Well, ultimately what we need is a king. But no king among men can be perfect. And that's why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect one who's coming. But the beast is the opposite of all that he is. And he is the culmination of all wickedness of all of humanity. I think that's one of the reasons he's called the Therion. Now, one point I want to make, and I won't labor this point, but some pre-wrath people would claim that the beast was first referenced in Revelation 6.8. And I just want to point out that when we were in that section, I refuted that. Because there, the beasts are plural. The beasts there come out of the earth, where the Antichrist comes out of the sea, the abyss. And so there, and plus, in Revelation 6, 8, you have an allusion to an Old Testament passage. And so for various reasons, I just want to assure you that this is the first reference in Revelation to the Antichrist. Although that's a disputed point by those in the pre-wrath movement. Okay. Now, the beast here, again, is allowed to kill the two witnesses. And notice, where do they lie? Well, they lie in the streets of Jerusalem. And if you look at the bottom of the text, it says they do not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. 
Now, that is a gross insult, and it's also what you would say is a sign of a curse upon those who are not properly buried in the ancient Near East. If you lived in Israel or the ancient Near East, any of the nations back then, and you weren't buried, it was, number one, a gross insult, but number two, many people looked at it as a sign that you were cursed. And so I want you to think about how these pagans are, in a sense, trying to denigrate God's people by not allowing the prophets to be buried. But they're also, in a sense, saying these two are cursed. They're not buried. But what's very interesting is we know that anyone who belongs to God through faith in Jesus Christ is blessed. You can't be cursed. It doesn't matter who tries to curse you. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you're blessed. And we're going to see that blessing because at the end of this text, they're going to be raised up. And I always think of the words, remember David says in Psalm 139, he says, if I ascend into the heavens, you are there. Where can I flee from your presence? If I descend down to Sheol, you are there. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And for his people, we have his favor. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. No, you cannot be cursed if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The worst that they can do is separate your body and soul. But nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? So, again, this is just, you know, one, one thing I thought of is when you're in Israel, many of you have been here, I know. Many of you know that the Muslims placed a bunch of tombs by the eastern gate. And, again, what I understood is that they did that, wasn't it? to prevent Messiah in their mind from coming. And the idea is because the tombs would make him unclean. Well, what's the problem with that? Anytime Jesus comes into contact with the unclean, they become clean. It doesn't taint him, right? And I thought of the same way. The pagans are always trying to curse the people of God, trying to curse God, but they don't have the power to do so. And I think that that's one of the things that we have to learn here from this text. Now, one other point in hermeneutics, in our art and science of biblical interpretation, Notice he says their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom in Egypt. Here is a tip-off that the biblical author is not speaking literally. He wants you to know that this is mystically, literally, spiritually, a metaphor. So Sodom and Egypt are representing some different city. So what is the city? Well, it's Jerusalem. Why? Because it's where the Lord was crucified. So John makes it very clear what city this is because we know where the Lord was crucified. But he's using the reference Sodom and Egypt for a reason. The reason being, I think, is because Sodom and Egypt had in common their hatred for God, the hatred for his rule, and oftentimes the hatred for God's people. And I want you to think about for just a moment, that's being referred to, or Israel and Jerusalem is being referred to Sodom and Egypt. So without Jesus Christ, right now Israel is no better than Sodom and Egypt, the enemies of God. But you're going to see just at the end of these passages that I think they do come to repent. Okay, but that's how bad off. It's not that the Jews in Israel right now are a little bit closer to God than all the other pagan nations. They're not. They have the divine election placed upon them in God's favor, and they will be restored. But it's not that any individual Israelite can claim that they're any closer to God than any other pagan. In fact, he regards them without Jesus Christ as Sodom and Egypt, the very enemies of God. All right, so to men like John Hagee, who claim that you can be saved without Jesus Christ just by being a Jew, I would say repent. That's a false gospel. The only people who enter into the king, kingdom that's going to be coming to Israel are those who believe in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. And that's one of the things that we've been learning in our study in Romans. Okay, now, one thing I want to point out here as we move on is that when God raises the two witnesses from the dead, I want you to think about how the world sees this. The world is going to see this. The people are going to see this and do that most of them repent. No, the idea is the majority of the world doesn't. Think about that for a moment. You're on CNN... You're clicking through the channels, and you know, oh, there's the dead prophets again. Oh, wait, they're rising up. Huh, oh, well, let's go on to see what's on Oprah or whatever. You know, I mean, can you imagine what that's going to be like? This is shocking. God is going to raise them up, and yet the majority of the world 
will still have hardened hearts and he'll bring judgment upon them. So just think about what this must be like in the 70th week of Daniel. Revelation 11, 10 through 12, it says, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. Now notice the phrase that I've highlighted read, those who dwell upon the earth. Now, that phrase, as I've mentioned numerous times, always refers to whom? Always to the unregenerate. Every single time. Remember, Revelation 3.10, Jesus promised the church of Philadelphia, and by extension, all of us who believe, because he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. So it extends to all of us. He says, because you've been faithful to keep, tereo, you've been keeping my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Well, what's the hour of trial? It's the 70th week of Daniel. That hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test everyone? No, it was to test those who dwell upon the earth. It's only designed, the 70th week of Daniel, to test those who dwell upon the earth. That's what's, that is what it's designed to do. Those who dwell on the earth are the enemies of God. And I want you to see here in this text that the two prophets, when they spoke, it was torment to those who dwelled upon the earth. See, when you and I listen to Bob preaching or John MacArthur or Mike or whoever's preaching and teaching and you hear the word of God, you rejoice, don't you? But notice when the word of God is proclaimed among those who dwell upon the earth, it's torment. That shows you the spiritual depravity of men and women unaided by the Holy Spirit, unregenerate, all right? Now, the other thing here is notice it says that after three and a half days, another three and a half, I'm not exactly sure why that's significant if it is, but it's interesting, three and a half years, three and a half days, the breath of life comes from God back into them. And we should remember that in God's creative acts, he is the one who sends out his ruach, his spirit, and gives the breath of life into creatures, whether they be animals or whether they be men. And so life comes from God, and he has the power to kill, and he has the power to raise up. And so here, he's raising up his two prophets, showing that even death cannot separate the people of God from him. Very, very important. Now, I also want you to see when he says, come up here, this should remind us also of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, when he was caught up in the whirlwind to meet God. Do you remember that? So this idea of being caught up in a cloud is something that often happens to uh, God in his prophets. I shouldn't say it often happens, but it happens periodically in the Old Testament. We see, for example, in 2 Kings 2, that Elijah was caught up in the whirlwind. We see that Jesus ascends in Acts 1-9 in what? A cloud. He's received out of sight. He's returning, according to 1 Thessalonians 4-17, in the clouds. Okay, so we know that God uses the, these clouds as a form of demonstrating his majesty, his glory, and his awe. And I think the same thing is occurring here. So the two witnesses overcome death. They're raised by God from the dead. Now, this is the key text, I think, here in this section. I think we see Jerusalem repenting, and therefore the Jews repenting here. I'll make the case. Revelation 11, 13 through 14, it says, And in that hour there was a great earthquake. Now stop there. Do you remember in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talks about earthquakes? And one of the points, we see this in Matthew 24, 7, Mark 13, 8. One of the points that I wanted to make when I taught my Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 was the earthquakes he's talking about are within the 70th week of Daniel. They're not before. There's no precursor prior. The reason why is the earthquakes within the 70th week of Daniel are so stupendous, they serve as signs. Remember one, you had uh, at the very beginning, I think it's in Revelation 6, you lost many people to it. Okay, well, here we see another one. And so this is what Jesus was referring to as a sign for those within the 70th week of Daniel. So he says, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Now that's Jerusalem. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified 
and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, here's what we have to wrestle with. Notice the rest of the city, and that would again would be Jerusalem, predominantly Jews. They end up giving glory to God, the God of heaven. Now, what we have to wrestle with is, are they giving glory to God because they are just scared? It's just an issue of fear, or is this genuine repentance? Well, for four reasons, I think this is genuine repentance. Now, let me give you the first and the most important reason. In the book of Revelation, when the phrase, they gave glory to God, is given, it's always connected with repentance or the lack of repentance. Let me explain why. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 4.9. Revelation 4.9. Now, granted, these are the living creatures, these angelic beings in the heavenly realm, but nonetheless, you'll see that giving glory to God means you're with Him, you're trusting in Him. Revelation 4.9, this is a positive statement. It says, and then the living creatures... Give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. So certainly these living creatures are not enemies of God. They, in fact, are being used by God and serve God. So giving glory to God there is a positive reference. Now, fast forward to Revelation 16.9. Revelation 16.9. This is one of the bold judgments. Revelation 16.9. I'll wait for, I hear papers turning still. Mm -hmm. Notice it says here that men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So the implication would be if they repented, they'd be giving him glory. But because they didn't, they weren't giving him glory. And again, Whenever we want to interpret something, let's start with the book that we're in. Okay, so if I want to know what Paul is saying in Romans, start with Romans. And then look at the rest of his literature, and then look at the rest of the New Testament, and then look at the rest of the Bible. The same thing applies with John. If I want to know what John is saying in Revelation, read how he uses the same phrase throughout Revelation. And then go to the rest of his literature, the epistles like Bob is teaching through, or the, uh, the Gospel of John. Okay, now let me give you one more reference. It's Revelation 19.7. Oh, I'm sorry, you know what? I don't know if that has it in there or not. Oh, yeah, it does. Sorry, my eyes are playing tricks on me here. Revelation 19.7. Everyone turn there, just three chapters ahead. Revelation 19.7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. Now, that's a response from whom? From believers. So again, giving glory to God is a positive thing. It's for believers, and it's a sign, I think, of repentance within the book of Revelation. So right there, when they're giving glory to God, I think that that should tip us off that this is a repentant act. The second reason why I think it's repentance is because throughout the Old and the New Testament, giving glory to God is normally associated with repentance, coming to faith. Now, that doesn't mean in rare texts where there are points like Paul's making in Romans 9 where God is going to be glorified by both his judgment and his salvation that sometimes God is glorified in judgment. But those are rare texts and there's a point that's being made by the author that's not generic just to repentance or salvation as it were. Okay? So let me just list some of these. Uh, Giving glory to God is usually positive. Here we have Joshua 7.19. First, I'm going to just read these off. If you guys want to jot these down, you can come up to me afterwards. They'll also be on the tape. Joshua 7, 19, 1 Samuel 6, 5, Isaiah 42, 2, Jeremiah 13, 16, Luke 17, 18, John 9, 24, Acts 12, 23, Romans 4, 20, 1 Peter 2, 12. So again, throughout the Old and the New Testament, when you give glory to God, it's a sign of repentance. Now, there's another reason why I think we should see this as repentance of the Jews. Notice very carefully in the text, it says that a tenth of the city fell. Okay, now what city are we in? Jerusalem, right? Well, so right there, a tenth of the city fell. 
That's Jerusalem. Well, then in the bold it says, and the rest were terrified and gave glory. The rest would be the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this isn't the whole world. It's Jerusalem. And it seems then that Jerusalem is coming to saving faith. That's how I would understand it. The final reason why I think this is genuine repentance is notice that they gave glory to the God of heaven. The God of heaven, as it's used all the way through the Old and the New Testament, is always a phrase that distinguishes Yahweh, or Jesus Christ, the true God, from the heathen gods, the pagan gods. And let me just give you one example of many. Ezra 1-2. Listen to what Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus was a form of an anointed one that God used for the sake of his people. Ezra 1-2, it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Notice he calls him the God of heaven. And the God of heaven then distinguishes Yahweh between, or from, I should say, all the other pagan gods. Okay, so here, dear ones, I think clearly we have evidence. Jerusalem is coming to faith. Jerusalem is a metonymy, a stand-in for all of Israel. Just as, let's say, the Russians were dealing with America and the president, and some Russian general comes in and says, what's Washington doing today? They're talking about Washington, D.C., but it stands for the whole country, right? It's a metonymy. In the same way, Jerusalem stands not just for Jerusalem, but the whole nation of Israel. Brothers and sisters, when Paul said in Romans 11:26, one day all Israel, or he says, in this manner, all Israel will be saved, I often wondered where else do we see this concept of Israel coming to faith? I think we see it here, that they are genuinely repenting. Okay? Now, let's look at a text that talks about the repentance of Israel. I want to show you some very profound things here in Zechariah 12, 9 through 10, because here in Zechariah 12, 9 through 10, I think is the Old Testament backdrop to what we just read about in Revelation 11. Also, obviously, with Zechariah chapter 4, etc. So what we're going to read here in Zechariah 12, I think, is exactly what has just happened to Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation 11. Let's read the text. First of all, notice in Zechariah 12, 9, it says, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Stop there. Notice the in that day reference. Okay, well, we know in that day is often a reference to the day of the Lord. And we have proof that that is certainly the case here. Why? Because God is going to destroy all the nations. Well, when does he destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem? In the day of the Lord. So right away, we know that Zechariah 12.9 is referring to those events within the 70th week of Daniel. Why? The 70th week of Daniel is the day of the Lord. Is everyone with me? That's why we got to get all our components together. So now we know the setting. We're within the day of the Lord, according to Zechariah 12.9. Notice verse 10. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Let's stop there. The issue in Zechariah 4 with Zerubbabel and Joshua was the Davidic promises. Was this Davidic king really going to reign someday in Jerusalem? Well, it can't if Jerusalem isn't built. It can't if the temple isn't there. And so now all of a sudden, God is going to pour out his spirit in the day of the Lord, in Daniel's 70th week, on the house of David, in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I think that's just what we read about in Revelation 11. And notice when he pours out his grace upon them, he says it's the spirit of grace. I believe that that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, but it brings a repentant heart within us. It's just like regeneration. In fact, proof of that, notice he says, the spirit of grace and of supplication. The term for supplication is taknun in Hebrew. Taknun. And supplication in Hebrew here is best rendered pleading for mercy. Okay, so literally, if I were to write my Eric Dalma version, I would say, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and a pleading of mercy. That's how I would render it. Now, let me give you evidence of that. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 143.1. Psalm 143.1. Now, I'm reading from the ESV because the ESV renders it that way. So if you have the ESV, you'll see this. Here's Psalm 143.1. Notice it says, Hear my prayer, O Yahweh. David says, Give ear to my pleas for mercy. 
in your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Notice where it says, please for mercy. That's tack noon. The same term that's used here for supplication in Zechariah 12.10. So it's a plea for mercy. So what's being described here is a brokenness for the people of Israel where they plea for mercy. Now, notice it gets very interesting. We have a purpose statement. Right after supplication, here's the purpose. It says, so that they will look on me, that's Yahweh, whom they have pierced, and notice the switch, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is a fabulous text. I believe it's a Trinitarian text. Now, one interesting thing, we don't have time to get into it all, but one very interesting thing is, notice it says that they'll look on me whom they've pierced. That's the piercing of God. And many Jewish commentators for centuries try to get around the obvious connotation that God is being physically pierced by saying it was a metaphor. The problem with that view is throughout the Old Testament, I'm talking from the Pentateuch all the way through, the same Hebrew term for pierced is always referring to a literal physical piercing. The problem with the Jewish commentators is the reason they couldn't understand how God could be physically pierced is they didn't understand the God-man. That when the Messiah came, he was truly man and truly God. And that's how God could be pierced. And notice here, remember, according to John 19.37, John cites part of Zechariah 12.10, they'll look upon me whom they've pierced. But he doesn't go any further. Okay, he doesn't go any further. Because notice the mourning that occurs. In the mourning, M-O-U-R-N, is a sign of repentance. In fact, this morning is going to be so great. In fact, turn to your Bibles, if you will. Let me show you a little bit more of this text because the next verse is interesting as well. Zechariah 12, 11. Zechariah 12, 11. I want to show you what kind of repentance and mourning this is. Zechariah 12, 11, the very next verse, Zechariah says, In that day... There will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimen in the plain of Megiddo. Now, what is the mourning in the plain of Megiddo? More than likely, that's a reference to King Josiah's death. In 2 Chronicles 35, recall that Josiah, I believe he went out to battle against Necho, the Egyptian pharaoh or Egyptian king, and he died. And it says in the scriptures that Josiah was a king in Judah and Israel that obeyed the law more than any other king. It says there, there was not a king before nor after that obeyed the precepts of God like he did. And there was mourning, a national mourning and sorrow that was unlike any sorrow the people of God had ever experienced. And what is being stated here then in this text is there's going to be such a great mourning and sorrow and repentant attitude that people in Israel had never seen this since the days of Josiah. Now, who could that be? Who would they be mourning over? Well, it's the one they pierced. Who is it that they pierced? Jesus, the God-man. Brothers and sisters, I think that that's exactly the repentance that we see happening in Revelation chapter 11. Why does this matter, dear brothers and sisters? Because the kingdom that's coming to Israel is our kingdom too. So on the one hand, we have to say the only people that are going to enter into the kingdom of Israel are believers in Jesus Christ. But the great news is that one day, in mass, Israel is going to come to faith in Messiah, and they will be regrafted into their own tree, as Paul points out in Romans 11. Now, we have just five minutes. Let me show you some of the texts that allude to this promise that Yahweh was going to dwell in Israel forever. Okay, I want to lay out some Old Testament texts that show that it was God's desire to put his kingdom forever in Israel. That's going to be the headquarters. Now, turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 7, 11 through 14. 2 Chronicles 11 through 14. I'll just go through some texts here with you. Now, as you're turning there, again, 2 Chronicles 7, 11 through 14. Remember Jesus' prayer when the disciples say, Jesus teaches to pray or Lord teaches to pray? And he says, don't pray in vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words, but pray like this. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, he says, 
thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So even in the Lord's prayer, we see this desire that the kingdom would in fact come to earth. That's exactly why Peter, after he'd been instructed about the kingdom for 40 days by the resurrected Jesus, that's quite a seminary, by the way. Can you imagine being that seminary? What seminary did you come from? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. So what did Peter say? He says, Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, where did Peter get that goofy idea that the kingdom's coming to Israel? It was from Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, where'd you get that knuckleheaded idea? He says, it's not for you to know the timing, but you're going to be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the kingdom's coming to Israel. Notice here, one of the reasons why, here's Solomon, a son, a son of David, the seed, a foreshadowing of the Messiah. He's imperfect, but he's a foreshadowing. Second Chronicles 7, 11 through 14, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of Yahweh in the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of Yahweh and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as the house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. I'll stop there for just a moment. How many times have you heard people try to apply that to America? Or bad idea. Because America never had a covenant, a Mosaic covenant. Who was breaking covenant? Israel did. But if Israel returned a covenant, God would promise to return his favor. Okay, so let's not take that and say, well, you know what? If we do this, then God is going to bless us again. It's not a promise for America. It's for Israel. Now, that was just a quick aside, but let's keep reading. Verse 15, he says, now my eyes, this is still Yahweh speaking. He says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen... And consecrated, remember consecrated means to be set apart. I've consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. How long is God's name going to be there? Forever. That's right. Um, Turn your Bibles real quickly to 2 Chronicles 33.4. 2 Chronicles 33.4. Here, the wicked king Manasseh was setting up idolatry within that temple. What was the problem with that? Well, the writer Chronicles says this, Second Chronicles 33, 4. It says, he built altars, that'd be pagan altars, in the house of Yahweh, which Yahweh had said, my name shall be in Jerusalem for how long? Forever. La olam, unto eternity. Okay? Now, fast forward to Isaiah 2, 2. I'll give you one more text. Well, actually, two more. I'll just give you two more. We, I think we can do it. Isaiah 2, 2. If you don't have time to turn there, just listen. It says, now it will come about in the last days. What days are we talking about in the book of Revelation? The last days. The mountain of the house of Yahweh, that's Zion, that's Jerusalem, it will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Has that ever occurred? No. But did God promise that it would? Yes. Is God faithful to his promises? Yes. He's the promise keeper. And so that's why Revelation 11 should be so exciting. See, we can yawn and say, well, there's nothing really for me what to do. No, we shouldn't yawn because these promises are our promises too. All right, turn one more time if you get a chance. Isaiah 27, 13. Isaiah 27, 13, I'll leave you with this. Just showing you promises in the Old Testament. It says, it will come about in that day, there's the day of the Lord, that a great trumpet will be blown. Stop there. Great trumpet, the only other time in the Bible that that's used is in the Olivet Discourse. That term, Galvol Shofar, great trumpet, is only used here in Isaiah 27, 13. So in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, when he talks about the great trumpet being blown, it's not a reference to the rapture. It's a reference to the ingathering of all the nations to the kingdom of Israel, just as promised in Isaiah 27, 13. The reference in the New Testament is Matthew 24, 31. So it will come about in the last day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria, those are enemies. And those who are scattered in the land of Egypt, they were enemies. They will come and worship Yahweh where? In the holy mountain at Jerusalem. 
Wow. The rebuilding of the kingdom of David is a great promise that you and I should be zealous for. Why? Because it's our kingdom too. We're not going to be just floating around on some cloud strumming a harp. That sounds boring. No, we're going to be serving our great God and King. We have a headquarters for the kingdom. It's going to be Jerusalem, but his reign will extend over the whole earth and in fact over the whole universe. But the headquarters isn't Minneapolis. The headquarters is Jerusalem, just as God had promised. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for being a God who keeps his promises. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust that one day your king and the kingdom is coming. So as we look at the fallen world and leadership that's gone astray and is so damaging to so many, help us to focus our eyes on the king of kings, the one who will turn all swords into plowshares and beat the spears into pruning hooks, the one who's the true prince of peace, who will teach the nation's peace, and who will reign in justice and righteousness. Help us to turn our eyes on his rule, his kingdom, and his reign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.